Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Intellectual History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Alexandra Ortolia Baird, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Giulia Bonazza about her new book, Abolitionism and the Persistence of Slavery in Italian States, 1750 to 1850, published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2018. Giulia, welcome to the show. Uh, good morning. Uh, hello, everyone. Thanks so much for being with us today. Um, so let's just jump in straight with our, our kind of first question, which is always, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to the topic um, of the book? Yes, sure. Uh, currently, I am postdoctoral fellow in an international project named uh, Documenting, Documenting Africans in Transatlantic Slavery. Uh, in Paris, in uh, CNRS, and um, I came to the topic of the book during my PhD. I did my PhD um, in Kafoskari University of Venice. Um, it was a joint PhD program with the Ecole des Hautes Etudes Sciences Sociales in Paris, and um, I started to study uh, Mediterranean slavery and uh, in particular um, slavery in Italian state. And uh, for me it was uh, something uh, uh, new because uh, during my master thesis in the um, University of Bologna, I um, did a um, thesis uh, on Aisha revolution and so I studied more before the, the Atlantic slavery and the Atlantic colonial world. So during my PhD, I moved from the Atlantic to the Mediterranean, even if in my book uh, the Atlantic is still present because there are many slaves uh, in Italy that uh, came uh, from the Atlantic and not only from North Africa or the Ottoman Empire, as we can uh, imagine. Thanks, Julia. That's that's a, a very kind of clear trajectory. Um, can you um, just briefly, you've kind of already introduced some of those points, but um, highlight to us what your motivations were really in writing this book? Um, yes. So I think um, this book uh, is, is important and uh, innovative because it really shows uh, the persistence of slavery in uh, at the end of 18th century and in 19th century. So in a chronological period um, in which uh, uh, we think that slavery is only a colonial phenomenon, uh, in reality we have uh, slaves uh, in Europe and in particular also in uh, Italian state. Uh, so I think uh, this, this book is, is important. This was an important motivation. Um, and not only 
for historian, but I think for all uh, all the citizen, um, not all Italian citizen, but in general for all the people of the world, is important to know that there were many slaves also uh, in uh, in Europe. That probably is a uh, neglected uh, phenomenon. Uh, in particular for the Italian case. Thank you. I mean, we're going to definitely, I think, come back to that point a little bit later in the interview. Um, But before we do so, could you just um, briefly outline the general structure um, of the book for for the listeners and and perhaps the main arguments or takeaway points that you want readers um, to come away with? Yes. Um, the book uh, is divided in five chapters. Uh, in reality, the first chapter and the last chapter are the introduction and the conclusion. Um, so the, the three important chapters are uh, chapter two, three, and four. Um, they are really the, the main core of the book. Uh, because the the three main aspects of this book are the the reverberation of the abolitionist debate in Italian state. So uh, this chapter two is really on abolitionism. Uh, At the beginning, I trace uh, um, the abolitionist discourse and legal abolitionism in general in Europe after I focus more uh, on the Italian state and uh, I present uh, many uh, juridical abolitionist law in uh, each uh, of the states that uh, I took in consideration and uh, um, after I trace uh, the intellectual movement uh, of uh, abolitionist thinkers in Italian state. Um, chapter 3 is really uh, my um, archival research on slaves' cases in Italian state. Uh, in reality, to be specific, my case studies are uh, six uh, cities of Italy, uh, so in particular Palermo, uh, Naples, Caserta, Roma, uh, Livorno and Genoa. And my archival research was based in these uh, cities in which I, I found uh, slaves' cases, that these cases are interested not too much for, from a quantitative perspective because there are not many, but they are interested because I, I was able to, um, to reconstruct a little bit the biography, so the origin, if they came from the Atlantic or from a city of North Africa as Algiers or Tunis, and uh, um, because I was able to understand the living condition, the working condition of uh, these slaves in Italian cities, and I tried to do some comparison between uh, um, the different cities, and so between the different Ita- pre-unitarian states in which this cities was based. Um, another important chapter is chapter 4, um, that is a more experimental chapter because it's on the memory of slavery, uh, that it is a difficult topic for, the, for Italy and for the Italian state because... Uh, 
as you know, um, Italy had not, in early modern period, a colonial empire, a formal colonial empire, as Great Britain or France or Spain or the Netherlands, but uh, we had only an empire at the end of the 19th century, so uh, really late. And uh, um, so uh, we think that uh, um, slavery is not something related to the Italian context for the early modern period, but uh, uh, in reality is not true. And uh, um, so in this chapter, I, I, try, I try to show that this, this memory is present because in, also in Italy we have um, many uh, statues, for instance, in Livorno, the, the famous statue of the four Moor, uh, that showed that slaves uh, were present in early modern period, also in an uh, Italian state. And uh, we have also many um, portraits, so as art history is fundamental sources for this memory of slavery, and also more visible because uh, uh, archival sources are mainly for historians. Uh, on the contrary, uh, we have really many, many portraits in Italy that show that many uh, Italian nobles uh, had uh, slaves uh, also in 19th century. So uh, in this chapter, I show, for instance, uh, also some um, portrait of Comte as Giuseppe Manara um, or the Comte Lecchi in Brescia uh, that um, had uh, slaves. Uh, so I think um, uh, this chapter is, is quite um, innovative and also is important for our contemporary debate in this day also on the the destruction of statues um, in the world, so not only in Europe, but this phenomenon starts in the United States. So uh, I think um, also in Italy this debate is, is quite uh, important. And uh, the conclusion of the book um, is a conclusion uh, named Abolitionism and the Continuity of Slavery, because really I show that even if also in Italian state we had the abolitionist law as in Great Britain, as in France, um, we have also the persistence uh, of the phenomenon. And uh, um, in particular in this conclusion also I, I, uh, the, the objective um, is to demonstrate the book really wants to demonstrate that, that uh, the, the Italian abolitionist movement and thinkers uh, really um, was only against uh, slavery in the colonial world in particular, and that the abolitionists in Italy, but uh, I think we can talk more in general of an European phenomenon, uh, really it seems that they don't take in consideration slavery uh, more closely, so in uh, in Italian city, but they only uh, made reflection mainly on Atlantic slave trade, on colonial slavery. Only sometimes on Mediterranean slavery, 
but never, never, uh, uh, never, never refer on slaves uh, uh, in Italian cities. So um, I think uh, for this chronological period, uh, this is something innovative. And, and these chapters that you've um, brought up, especially chapter four um, and the conclusion, are incredibly powerful. And I think, um, especially today in, in the current um, kind of global climate, um, they really struck me um, upon reading. And, and they're very, very um, important, as you say, contributions, I think, not just to the historical discussion, but um, but also to kind of civic um, awareness. Um so just kind of circling back a little bit, because I'm aware that um, perhaps many listeners are not um, perhaps familiar with the history um, of slavery in the Italian peninsula. Yeah. So could you um, just give us a very broad overview of this history, which leads up to the period that you've studied in the book? Yes, sure. Um, in Italy, uh, we have an important historiography on, uh, on captivity uh, in Mediterranean uh, and also on slavery in Mediterranean. Uh, obviously, uh, all these books are written in Italian and, uh, and not in English. And so we have uh, the important book of Salvatore Bono, Schiavi, translated in English uh, slaves. Uh, also some important books of Giovanna Fiume and many other historians. Uh, but uh, um, these books uh, um, uh, really important um, took in consideration only the phenomenon of captivity uh, in, uh, in Italy and often they study only one, specifically one city and the, the period, the chronological period of this uh, Italian historiography uh, was uh, always uh, from the um, 15th, 16th, until the 18th century, and the 19th century uh, was always uh, um, excluded in his uh, uh, historiography. And so uh, for me, uh, his historiography was a fundamental starting point, uh, also a first article of Raffaella Sarti, uh, she found a, a case of slaves also in Bologna at the end of the 19, at the beginning of the 19th century, and so uh, his first article of Raffaella Sati was important because uh, other historians understand the, the urgence to find other slave cases in, in other cities for the first half of the 19th century, and also for for the part of the book more on intellectual history, um, we have uh, um, uh, an important book of Alessandro Ticillo, always written in Italian, on the anti-slavery movement, uh, uh, in particular in Naples. Uh, but the, books, the book of Alessandro Tuccillo focuses only specifically on the uh, Enlightenment period, so really on the 18th century, and uh, also Tuccillo um, didn't study the uh, abolitionist thinkers of the 19th century. Um, so... Uh, I think it's important that also uh, other scholars and people interested in, the, in this topic read this Italian book 
uh, and also my book for this uh, more late period uh, of the end of the 19th century and for the 19th century. So just staying um, with this topic that you've kind of brought up of historiography, you draw um, attention to the shift in scholarship from what you say is the history of slavery to the history of the slave, um, which you kind of see as a result um, of methodologies from Italian microhistory and subaltern studies. Um, but you also kind of highlight the lack um, of data on slavery um, quantitatively regarding the Italian context. So can you explain to us how your research mediates this tension um, in its approach and, and what kind of source materials have you relied on in order to do that? Yes, sure. Um, considering the attention on, on, the, on the slave and not on the general phenomenon of uh, slavery, uh, yes, I think this a shift uh, uh, is is important and uh, not only for me but for a new uh, generation of uh, uh, of scholars uh, because before uh, also for the Mediterranean the objective were more to present uh, this phenomenon of ransom of captives if uh, if we think also at the French book of Wolfgang Kaiser Le Commerce des Captifs. So it was more on, on quantitative data and also to understand the phenomenon of the, of the ransom. And um, so concerning quantitative data, uh, the, the problem uh, is, is not only for the Italian case, but is more in general a problem for uh, the studies on Mediterranean slavery because uh, we have some estimation of the presence of slaves in nearly modern period uh, in Mediterranean, made by Salvatore Mono, uh, Bono or Aurelia Martin Casares in Spain, and the number is around um, 6 million, 7 million. Uh, so compared to the Atlantic trade, that we have um, around 11 million, uh, 12 million, the number is totally different, but these numbers are really not precise because for the Mediterranean slavery, we have not, uh, uh, as for the colonial slavery, uh, this important uh, register of uh, uh, the state, uh, because, for instance, for the French colonial empire, if we want to study slavery in the, colon in the French colonial empire, in in Paris and the next in Provence, we have these archives of, of the mayor, and we can find many complete lists of the number of the slaves. For the Mediterranean, is more complicated because we have to find these traces, but we have not really a complete list of the number of slaves. So we have to find slaves in many types of different sources. And uh, for instance, I, I use uh, sources as uh, baptism register, uh, so Catholic sources, uh, this important archival group of House of Catechumens in Rome, uh, family archives, uh, sources as soldiers and galleys in state archive, uh, but also juridical sources, 
So uh, I really used a wide uh, range of different type of sources to try to reconstruct this, uh, uh, this life of, uh, of the slaves. Uh, considering the, the methodology, yes, I was uh, for sure influenced by uh, the Italian microhistory and the subaltern studies, uh, but uh, in reality, I, I didn't use uh, Italian microhistory. Uh, because it's some really more complex and uh, you have to use a particular type of exceptional sources that uh, I do not use because I, I collect different type of sources. But for sure, uh, in this book, uh, for me, it's really important the connection between the local, these local cities and the global because uh, we discovered that we have slaves that come from different parts of the world, also from Brazil, uh, from uh, um, also the French colonial empire. So uh, we really discovered that the global and the local are really connected and that uh, the attention on the history of slave because is important because we can discover how they change their identity also with uh, after the baptism they change their name so also uh, it's fundamental uh, try to reconstruct the, the origin the movement the circulation and the, the entering in this new community um, in Italian uh, in Italian cities so uh, I think, uh, uh, yeah, I, I use more in general um, an approach of uh, social uh, of social uh, history. So you've raised two really kind of interesting um, kind of terms or concepts, which are captivity and ransom. Um, in your in your answer there, and I, I wanted to speak kind of more generally about this kind of really core issue of terminology and language when talking about slavery in historical con- uh, context. So. Could you perhaps outline some of the difficulties that you faced with regards to the language being used in this period to describe the forms of enslavement and the varied terms and meanings that you actually encountered? Yes. Um, so, uh, in general, uh, in historiography, um, we, we find in book the word the slaves and captives. And uh, the difference between the two words is that a captive is a slave, but only for a short period of time. So is a captivity is a, is a temporary form of slavery. On the contrary, uh, the condition of a slave is a permanent condition because uh, a slave cannot be ransomed by uh, by his family or by the state uh, as a captive. So um, it's a different condition. Uh, the problem is uh, that even if in historiography we use uh, these two words in sources, uh, um, the taxonomy, the vocabulary is more complicated because uh, for my case studies, uh, I don't find, I don't, uh, I really don't find in sources the word captive, 
but I find the word slaves, for instance, only in Catholic sources. But in statal sources, you find words that define more the ethnic origin of a captive or a slave, as um, Turk or Turkish or black. Uh, I found the color of the slave, but uh, in statal sources, I never, never find that. Uh, really the, the word slave for this also period of the end of 18th century for start of the 19th century. So uh, we find also the word uh, more um, and uh, so often often the historian have to understand that this is a slaves or captives with the other data of the sources. On the contrary, for the Catholic sources, is more easy because uh, in baptism register, you really find that this is a slave, that, uh, for instance, he was born on a ship, on a Portuguese ship by an African slave. Uh, um, so we, we really, in Catholic sources, we really find uh, important uh, data uh, that really prove the presence of uh, of Atlantic also slaves. On the contrary, on statal sources, uh, I found more uh, cap- Mediterranean captives, but uh, yes, the, the taxonomy employed uh, is uh, quite different by the word that today uh, historians use when they write uh, books. And it was really fascinating reading um, the book to kind of see this really profound difference in vernaculars between the types of sources. Um, but I just want to kind of move ahead a little bit to, to chapter two, um, where you discuss the reverberations of the abolitionist debate in the Italian state. So could you just outline for, for listeners the shape that abolitionism took in the Italian states and perhaps um, its similarities and differences with, with other European nations? Yes. Um, for sure, uh, um, the Italian abolitionism uh, was deeply, deeply influenced by the French uh, um, abolitionism, uh, but also uh, by the abolitionist movement uh, in uh, in Great Britain. Uh, another big difference is that for the Italian case were not really um, important uh, important figure uh, that we can say, ah, this was an important abolitionist thinker. Yes, we have Gaetano Filangeri for the 18th century, uh, a other important figure that Alessandro Cucillo studies. But for the 19th century, uh, we have... Uh, a wide range of, uh, um, of intellectuals as Andrea Zambelli, uh, but uh, also uh, we discovered his abolitionism uh, more in newspaper. For instance, in the Gazzetta di Milano, so a daily, daily newspaper in Milan, or uh, l'Anthologie de Officio, it was an important newspaper in Florence, if we read that this newspaper, we found a uh, reflection on the problem of slave trade, of slavery. They, they tried to propose some solution uh, 
to, to try to, to stop the, the phenomenon, or in this newspaper, they, they translate a lot uh, some abolitionist uh, writing of written by uh, the French or the British abolitionist thinker. Uh, we have also uh, among uh, the, the group of uh, quite anonymous abolitionist thinkers in Italian state, uh, Algenore de Gasparina, uh, who wrote Schiavitù e Tratta, on Slavery and Trade. I found also an uh, important uh, uh, academic course for the University of Padova uh, at the half of the 19th century, um, of an economic historian of the period uh, written uh, really uh, to, to, to try uh, to find some solution to stop the trade. Also, uh, Catholic newspaper um, uh, have uh, some abolitionism, abolitionist articles as the famous uh, Catholic uh, newspaper Civitano Cattolica, but we have also uh, the Nuovo Giornale dei Letterati. Um, so uh, this abolitionism uh, in, is present in newspaper, in annals, in really short, short book or in uh, university uh, course of, uh, of the first half of the 19th century. Um, but uh, I think this is really uh, a starting point for uh, future uh, research because uh, uh, probably there are many other unknown abolitionist uh, thinkers um, in Italian state. So um, it's uh, something that probably have to be uh, analyzed more uh, more in deep. And uh, um, in particular, uh, um, the, for the Pranitari Italia State, uh, France was um, an important uh, center. Uh, the, the, the French abolitionist movement was an important, important center. But when we read this article on the Italian newspaper, you discover that the Italian tried to enter into this debate on uh, progressive uh, uh, abolition. So the, the debate on the apprenticeship made by the Grand Vita in his colonial world or if they um, or if they are for a more direct abolitionism um, as uh, France made uh, in 1848 so uh, we can we can understand how the, the Italian thinkers try to, to enter uh, in this international debate to to propose uh, some some solution, but uh, for sure uh, this Italian uh, debate uh, was less important uh, than the abolitionist movement in France or the, abolition, the abolitionist movement in Great Britain or also the Quakers movement in the United States. 
But uh, I think uh, today is really important. The, histori- the historiography, the, the historian started to study uh, abolitionism also in other states because uh, today we talk about uh, Italy, the Italian case, but uh, also in Germany there are uh, really new projects also on uh, the abolitionist movement also in German state before the, uni- before the unification and also on, uh, on the topic of, uh, of slavery uh, in German cities. So uh, I think it's really important that today in Europe uh, we, we, try, uh, we try to study, to discover that uh, um, this important topic of slavery and abolitionism is uh, also uh, a topic that concerns uh, deeply also the, the country that had not a formal colonial empire. And I think that's something that, you know, your book does so well is to really show the complexity um, of uh, slavery um, in the Mediterranean context and, and also globally then. But um, just kind of picking up on, on the last question, could you perhaps go into a little bit um, more detail about the actual kind of intellectual history of the Italian abolitionist movement? So especially the kinds of arguments and ideas that were really driving um, the kind of the, the kind of intellectual debate? Yes. So um, in this debate, uh, the role of the Haitian revolution is really important. Uh, for instance, in Andrea Zambelli, Sulla schiavitù dei negri, uh, there is really a reflection on the quality of, of, the, of the black, of the black slaves with the, with the white uh, men. And this equality is really proofs, uh, the, the proofs for these uh, uh, philanthrop- philanthropists uh, was the, uh, the Asian Revolution because for the first time in history, the slaves made an important revolution against, uh, against the, the colonizer, the white French colonizer, and they demonstrate his effort and his ability uh, to... Uh, to became uh, independent and also to became free. So this point of the Asian revolution is really important uh, in, um, in Italian uh, abolitionism. And uh, also there are uh, uh, these uh, intellectuals are also really interested in the economic aspect of the profitability or not profitability of slave. Uh, trade in the sense that uh, as in Great Britain they think that uh, the, the trade of slaves uh, the beginning of the 19th century is not uh, is not something profitable from an economic point of view so really many reflections are also uh, related to, uh, to, to to the economy of, uh, of uh, the time and uh, um, for sure uh, the the concept of, uh, of equality of, of the terrible uh, condition of slaves uh, started to become more and more important and also uh, the papal state uh, in the 19th century, uh, so the, the Pope started to write important uh, 
document important and cyclical that are uh, fundamental also for um, the king of uh, each European country against the terrible phenomenon of slave trade and of slavery in the colonial world. So also this uh, role of, of the papal state in the world um, really uh, was fundamental because if we think ad in Supremo Apostolatus uh, in uh, 1939 of uh, uh, Gregorio VI, uh, this was a really important uh, act of, uh, of abolitionism against trade and colonial slavery. But also at the end of the century, if we think the International Conference of Bruxelles, uh, the uh, important uh, encyclica of uh, Leon XIII, the Pope Leon XIII, uh, in plurimis was a really abolitionist important document. Um, so uh, I think uh, um, there are many specificity on this uh, um, intellectual but also political abolitionist movement uh, in Italian state. Thank you, Julia. That's um, that's very kind of helpful to kind of frame it um, and kind of the different elements of, of discussion. Um, so in chapter three, you, you move on to kind of talk about the forms of slavery in the Italian states. And um, something that I, I thought was particularly striking um, was regarding the baptism of slaves in cities like Naples and Rome. Um, could you give us a little bit of a, a background to the demographics and the nature of these these baptisms that took place? Yes. Uh, so for for the case of Naples, uh, the baptism was fundamental because uh, um, often um, was uh, in Naples imposed because I find slaves there of nobles, men, or of uh, um, traders. So uh, we found the, the, na- the original name of the slave, for instance, in 1925, there is Pasquale, who was born on a Portuguese ship, and uh, his origin was Guinea. And uh, something interesting is that Pasquale, after the baptism, changed his name, and the family name who is adopted is Marino Caffiero, uh, there is that uh, uh, the same Caffiero, the same family name of the, of the owner. So the new, the new Italian name of Pasquale is Salvadore Maria Raffaele Francesco Marino Caffiero. So it's really changed his identity. So this is one of the first aspects really, really important. Uh, but uh, we are able to understand, yes, the, the origin. Uh, often he was his mom. For instance, in this baptism register is written was an African slave. Uh, so we have some data. Uh, concerning uh, Rome, um, also it depends because if they are captives that work in galleys for the papal state, Often the baptism is not imposed, but is more a request of the of the of the slaves 
that they prefer to be baptized because they don't want to, to live or to stay in galleys all the time because the working condition was terrible. So they prefer to be baptized because in Rome, if they want to receive the Baptist, they have to live for one year in this house of catechumens. And uh, in this year, they, they don't work, but they are uh, only educated at the Catholic religion. And after the baptism, uh, they can improve their social and working condition because um, in many cases, uh, slaves in Rome after the baptism became soldiers in Castel Sant'Angelo. So really there is an improvement of their living and working condition. Uh, but uh, um, also in Rome, after the baptism, they, they don't have the juridical free, freedom, the legal freedom. So we can say that they have a really, really uh, better condition, but they are not free. Uh, and sometimes they can also receive a form of salary or, or remuneration. Uh, these both in Rome, uh, but also I found many slaves, they are paid in Caserta. So uh, also uh, these cases show the complexity, the tension between the legal and juridical status and the working and social condition uh, in, in, this, uh, in this community. Uh, for sure, uh, the baptism is something that really tried to, to deny to die, to cancel the past of this man because they change the name and they try to be assimilated in, uh, in this new uh, Christian community. Thank you. It's it's such a fascinating um, kind of dimension of the book, and and religion just more generally is is really central, I think, to your narrative. Um, but I think the connections between different faiths and slavery is is perhaps more complex and diverse than listeners might be um, aware of in in the Mediterranean. And you give really fascinating accounts of different types of slavery. So so that of of, of Jews, of Turks, of Black Africans, Algerians, Christian Tuscans, um, Armenians, uh, and many others. And so I'd be interested to hear more about how religion was a motivating factor in Italian slavery, and also the extent to which it was conflated with ideas of race. And we, you touched a little bit about this earlier when talking about the different ways and the different vocabularies used um, to describe slavery. But um, maybe you could speak a bit more about the connections between race and, and, um, and religion. Yes. So uh, in reality, in, in my book cannot prove that black slaves uh, had... Um, a more terrible living condition than other type of slaves as uh, captives from the Ottoman Empire or um, Jewish slaves. But uh, for sure, in sources, this connotation of blacks uh, is important because also in Catholic sources uh, written often in Latin, um, we find this expression Turca Nigra. So also if we have uh, not a slave from the Atlantic world, but for instance, a captive from North Africa uh, who is black, this is really specified in sources. 
and so uh, this is an, an, an important element uh, concerning the taxonomy. Another element that prove uh, not that black slaves have a worst living condition in Italy, but the proofs they have an in, uh, inferior uh, economic value because uh, I found uh, some economic sources uh, of ransom of slaves that proves that, uh, for instance, uh, in Algiers, they don't want black slaves that came, uh, for instance, from Palermo or Livorno, but they want only uh, Levantine captives or uh, Algerian captives uh, because these sources prove that in this exchange, when also Italian city tried to ransom some Christian slaves, uh, for the Italian city is really difficult uh, to try to exchange black slaves. It's quite impossible because in North Africa they don't want uh, um, these black Atlantic slaves often. And uh, um, so it is uh, also an element. Uh, uh, that for sure um, prove uh, uh, this uh, phenomenon of racialization, but it seems uh, um, more motivated by economic uh, reason uh, because uh, probably in North Africa they prefer to have uh, captives. And as I have previously said, uh, slaves from the Atlantic have not a family or state that can pay for, for them. So often they stay in Italy and they work for noble families on, uh, in, uh, in agriculture and they, they, they stay there. They, they not move more in other, in other country. Thanks, Julia. Um, so I'd like to turn now to chapter four, which I think is is probably for many listeners a, a really pertinent um, and important um, chapter. And here you turn to the, the memory of slavery and how the history of the West and of slavery are inseparable. Um, and obviously, given the current political circumstances, this, this has, you know, huge resonance. And you make a really convincing argument regarding the business um, of the memory of slavery. Could you Could you explain what you mean by this? Yes. So um, I think um, also today um, there is this, this complex debate uh, on the problem of, of memory. As we know, the real problem in Western country uh, is that we have not a shared memory, but uh, in Europe uh, the official discourse is still Eurocentric. We don't want to include uh, other memory of minority groups or of descent of slaves in, in, in this official discourse of the state. Uh, but uh, uh, my point of the business of memory of slavery is more related to the opening of these uh, uh, museums in Africa um, that for they have to try to remember uh, the past of the of the slave trade, and I think the role of this museum, uh, from one hand, could be positive also in Italy because it's important to have this museum 
on the on on this on the path on the history of slavery because um, a more uh, wider public can enter in, in the museum and also uh, learn about this past but uh, in in my sense also about this opening up of many museums in Africa it seems that they are for also for for rich tourists and and so it really don't touch the important point of a shared uh, memory of slavery in western country because this memory have to pass by uh, teaching course in school in primary school in secondary school in university and uh, the the strange thing and that in Europe in particular in in each uh, in each high school in Italy in Spain in France in Great Britain we have uh, uh, still uh, quite a nationalistic and uh, Eurocentric version of history, and uh, so it seems that uh, um, uh, it seems that this history of slavery is is something uh, still today really not taken in consideration. So uh, the the role of museum also in Great Britain in France is is really important, but. Uh, um, uh, yes, so, sometimes I, I feel the real job have uh, have to be made uh, really in in school in school program for this shared uh, memory of slavery or for this new writing of of history of slavery because for instance in in this chapter I present also some problems of this museum because. For for in Nantes in France, the museum is really uh, a museum on, on the memory of slavery only in Nantes. Uh, okay, with some connection uh, with the problem in general, but also in in, uh, in Great Britain in Bristol, this museum is 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 really related only to the to the trader uh, in Bristol. And for instance, there is no nothing about Mediterranean slavery. Um, so uh, I think uh, uh, that uh, um, the, there is uh, um, a lot of job to, to, to do about uh, um, about to, about the reconstruction of a new memory of slavery and a new clo- knowledge of our uh, slaves' past. And I think, you know, you, you do this so well and, and it's an incredibly powerful, um, chapter. And, and, you know, as an intellectual historian, I'm, I'm really grateful for, for when historians like yourself are kind of forcing, um, those on the academic side, um, of history to really think about, um, the, the resonance that our work has for society and, and the ways in which we can go beyond this, you know, performative, um, allyship and this kind of performative decolonization um, of, of history and and of society, um, and one one thing that I think you know is is possibly really important in this and that you draw attention to in this chapter is the emphasis on visual culture mm-hmm. and and memory. Um, could you explain how you um, or how sorry the the image of slavery in Italy changed um, and what this tells us about shifting perceptions um, of race? Yes, because um, now that some art historian or historian started to present this uh, status or this portrait 
the, we start to have an attention also in the public opinion, in, in newspapers started to write, uh, uh, thanks to Ijabashego also, uh, something about this uh, slavery past uh, in Italy. Uh, but uh, really, uh, before, even if in Venice, in Livorno, also we have strict name called the uh, Turco, uh, really until uh, 10, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, we had no perception about this uh, slave's past, but it was really a, a neglected phenomenon. And so I, I think uh, really also this interdisciplinary collaboration between historian, art historian, uh, architect uh, is, uh, is important to, to reconstruct uh, this uh, um, slavery past uh, in Italy. So in your conclusion, um, you state that, and I'm just going to kind of read a quotation, um, Despite the affirmation of the great principles of abolitionism in Italian states, forms of slavery survived there for an extended period. The juridical abolitions of slavery in these states were usually imposed and influenced by external powers, namely Great Britain and France. Rather than being the result of internal reflection, these changes were closely connected with evolving international juridical norms regarding the abolitions of the various slave trades. Now, can you just... um, kind of contextualizes a little bit and explain these contradictions between Italian views regarding colonial slavery and the persistence of slavery in the Italian territory. And I know you've touched on this a little bit um, already, but um, because something that's so important in your book is this idea of the persistence um, of slavery. Um, so so could you just um, reveal a little bit more about what you meant here? Yes. Um, so from a juridical point of view, uh, also in Italy, we have uh, abolitionist law against uh, slave trade and slavery, in particular uh, in um, the Lombardo Veneto in 1916, in um, the Kingdom of Naples, uh, we have some law in 1808, uh, in Tuscany in 1853. But uh, I would say that even if we had this abolitionist law and uh, also this intellectual abolitionism, uh, these uh, cases persisted. And in particular, the juridical law, the legal law, uh, were more uh, influenced by the external and not by the internal reflection because... uh, as probably you know, uh, from a geopolitical point of view, the Italian state uh, in this chronological period, the end of 18th century, the first half of 19th century, were really important geopolitical base for, uh, in particular for Grand Britain and France, they tried to, to have the monopoly of the Mediterranean in this period. So I think that Italy play uh, a role of, uh, of intermediary e, uh, in this sense I say also that this juridical legal law are more influenced by the external or sometimes imposed as during the Congress of Vienna or during some bilateral diplomatic agreement between 
för instans Grenbriten är det granduckiga av Tuskan. Thank you so much, Julia. And to finish, I just want to circle back to your arguments regarding memory and memorialization of slavery. Um, and I'm going to read another quotation just because I, I think it's it's really it's really so important for communicating, you know, what your views are um, in this book. So you say a dialectical relationship based on exclusion from or inclusion in the public mind exists between memory and identity. An attempt to analyze memory as a political act means analyzing not only the public uses and manipulation of memory, but also the sidelining of certain elements of the past and the silences that pertain around controversial issues. All of these dynamics are relevant to how slavery is remembered. There is no public historical memory of the Atlantic slave trade in Italy, even though Italian states were home to slave ship owners and Italian cities were logistical basis for the trade. Now, given the current debates regarding public history and, and memorialization, I'd like to finish with you know your thoughts concerning the civic and political role of the historian and also how historians like yourself might contribute to the public historical memory of the slave trade in Italy specifically. Yes. Uh, yes, I think historians um, have to contribute uh, by writing uh, by writing books uh, and um, and uh, yes, I think also they have to be engaged in the society. Uh, but um, I think also we have to understand that we cannot uh, uh, we cannot go more further to 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 study slavery uh, only related to to a single empire. So I think today it makes it makes not more sense. That Great Britain study only the British Empire on France, the French Empire, because we understand we understand that in slave trade and slavery, many actors were implicated, and many actors of different nationalities. So it is true that the state of the power, okay, was probably Great Britain or Spain that they paid the Italian traders, but for sure also the Italian traders or traders of and nationalities uh, were implicated. So uh, I think we have started to, to study these slaves lobbies of the past. And so the, this panorama is more complex than the nationalized uh, empire that uh, we have uh, always studied until now. Thank you, Julia. And before we before we leave you, because we've taken up so much of your time, um, could you just give us a quick idea of what you're currently working on? Uh, yes. So um, in October, I started a new important research project granted by a Marie Curie Global Fellowship. So it's an important European funding. And... Uh, I will study two years in Columbia University in New York and uh, one year in Kafoskari University of Venice. And my new project uh, is on uh, the value of skin color of uh, slaves and black laborers in the Atlantic and Mediterranean in the period 1750-1880.
Well, I, we, we very much look forward to hearing um, about that research in the future. Julia Bonazza, thank you so very much for being with us today and um, talking about your book, Abolitionism and the Persistence of Slavery in Italian States, 1750 to 1850. Thank you again. Thank you, Alexandra. Thank you many thanks. Uh,